All right, so uh, welcome to the show. We're at the uh, Unified CXM Experience, and as always, I'm your host, Grad Khan. I'm CXO, or Chief Experience Officer at Sprinkler, and we have a guest today. Yeah, we managed to trick someone onto the show. I don't know how it happened, um, but we've got a wonderful, wonderful guest today. Uh, so Michelle Shantara, who is the CMO at Corel. Yes, that Corel, we'll come back to that in a second, uh, is joining us. And we're going to talk to Michelle about Corel, what they're doing today. And, uh, you know, just dig into some marketing stuff and have some fun. So, Michelle, welcome to the show. Awesome. Thanks so much for having me, Grad. So let's start with uh, two quick things. One thing that's always really helpful is people love just knowing, like, how did you end up at Corel and where were you before? You've got a, a, a very... Um, calm job history like you know the i think the average tenure of a cmo these days is like two years and uh i think 18 months i've been heard heard floating around recently as being the new you know extra long tenure of a cmo uh so um but that's not really true for you so your career has been pretty interesting i'd love you to describe that really quickly and then and then let's talk about corel because i I'm from Canada, as you can probably hear, and uh, you know, Corel was something that was a really big deal in Canada, and I've kind of followed it and sort of sort of kept connected to it over the years. Uh, but I think for most people, the Corel of 2022 is very different from the Corel of 2002, which may be what most people are thinking about. So, let's start with your career, and we'll go from there. Well, Brad, I'm I'm really close to the border of Canada, so I, I might sneak in an A or two. Oh, so, great. Uh, do they sneak uh, do the uh, A's sneak across the border? So I train them out of my yeah. language. I I replaced the word oh, A yeah. with right. Um, but okay. that's not always appropriate. So I've 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 noticed that the, that's a bit of a I I made a substitution, but it isn't always right. And the reason I found out is that I'm 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 now engaged to an American. So for the first time in my life I'm living with an American. And and I say a lot of stuff. I thought I was fine. I thought I completely assimilated like that. I was like, told no one could even tell. It's just like every other sentence. She's like, no, 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 that's not the right way to use that word. It's like, what are you talking about? What's an eavesdrop? Like, it just goes on. <laughs> Bring back the egg. Yeah. Uh, okay. So a little bit about me. Um, so I actually started my career, ironically enough, in, in venture capital. And hmm, interesting. Very oftentimes, I yeah, I tell I tell people or refer to that experience that I had. It was it was almost like I was getting my MBA because there was a small group of us, eight total, two partners. I was doing marketing communications, and I was really forced at a very early part in my career to really understand business. Hmm. Right? These guys are making big investments. And this was in the mid nineties uh, where it was the internet going up, not down. I'll come to that point in a minute. Um, and it really was an amazing experience for me as a marketer, but to have so much visibility into how business is done. Well, I, I did what I thought was something really smart. And that was to follow the CFO to a startup. Again, we were on this internet wave and I went to a network management company, a uh, software company, so a couple of uh, fortes into my career today. And um, I was actually hired to build their partner program. So indirect selling models in the tech space are uh, obviously critical. And I have to be honest with you, I did not know what an indirect selling model was when I was hired at the software company, but I figured it out. 
Stayed there for about a year, got some, some solid experience in how business is done in tech, um, but decided that I wanted to take on a, a bigger company to get in there and really ingrain myself and grow from within. And I joined Cisco in 2000. Wow, that's um, great. I, yes, I am, I am not. I didn't experience the stock splits. I actually, I'll, I'll, I'll date myself. When I joined, the stock was at 40. March of 2001, I'd been there for about four and a half months. I'd married in March of 2001. The stock was at $13.36. So you're talking about the Cisco people. Uh, But I spent almost 21 years there. I played almost every aspect of the marketing discipline that you can imagine. But what I would say is my my real superpower uh, was being in that sort of go-to-market uh, marketing motion, getting that proximity to customers, partners, and sellers. And uh, in 2020, I celebrated my 20th year and took a pause and said, all right, what's next? And uh, I aspired to be a CMO. I saw where the technology industry was going. This as a service thing is very real. Consumption models have shifted drastically. And uh, albeit Cisco is certainly offering software and as a service, but I wanted to get ingrained in a, in a real software as a service uh, company. And you know what? I wanted to go back to, to some of my roots. I wanted to get into a smaller company. I was looking at VC-backed and PE-backed companies. Um, along came Corel. And like you, I went, Corel, hmm, cool. Hmm. Can't remember what they do, but they sound familiar. Um, but landed the gig as, as the CMO and, Congratulations. and, and here I am. That's great. Yes. Thank you. And you're right on this, this company, what it was 30 years ago to where it is today, uh, has drastically changed. I won't walk you down memory lane, but just give a little perspective in the last, uh, handful of years, about three years ago, KKR private equity firm out of the Bay area, uh, made a sizable offer and uh, purchased Corel. Uh, and what I've heard from the KKR guys is Corel, <clears throat> albeit might have some challenges as it relates to recognition. I won't say brand recognition, it's recognition because the company's been around for a long time and has transformed. Um, but it is a company that has assets that are incredibly valuable to the knowledge worker, helping mm. knowledge workers be more productive uh, you'd even be surprised, Brad. We actually have a virtualization offering, and that's ultimately what has changed Corel's face over the years. We've been known as Corel Draw, but really, we own a portfolio of software products. We've got Corel Draw. We have Mind Manager, a mind mapping uh, software platform. We have WinZip. Does that one not take oh, you back in wow, time? Zip. Holy <laughs> and compression. And we have parallels. As I said, uh, we're in the virtualization oh, space. Parallels, uh, parallels right. That's a really big is, deal. Yeah. 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 And they've got kind of kind of two paths that are incredibly relevant right now to what's going on around us. We've got desktop virtualization. You know, we want to be able to choose what device we want. I happen to use a Mac. If I want to use Windows, Parallels allows me to do that. Yep. And we also have a uh, remote access server. So we've got uh, on-prem the ability to do virtual desktop infrastructure and to stream applications. Uh, So the company is incredibly diverse. Probably one of the biggest challenges, if I can be candid, that I face as as a marketer is each of the audiences are different. 
And that is absolutely enabling us to have many conversations within a company. But as we're thinking through what does the future Corel look like, uh, we're, we're really challenged with how do we tell this narrative that shows how robust Corel is, because that's very important, but yet tells a cohesive story that all our, us marketers strive to do. That's super interesting. So, and was I, did I see also that you have WordPerfect? WordPerfect is still alive yeah, and well. That's like amazing. Government, yeah. government and uh, law firms love it. Oh, Just isn't the flexibility of having that ongoing document. So, yep, still alive and well. Isn't that something? So, okay, so let's... Um, I do have a couple of questions about your career for a sec, just before we dig into this branding issue. I think, which I think is fascinating. Uh, I want to maybe, maybe can just sort of brainstorm a bit around that. But the, um, as you, as you made this leap, I think, well, what a lot of people would be interested in listening and hearing is how you made the leap from a very large sort of Silicon Valley based tech firm. I know you're, you were working in the New York office, but you know, you were, you know, Cisco, you tend to think Valley, classic Valley company. Uh, you're there for 20 years, which is, by the way, amazing. Like, congratulations. You know, I worked at Microsoft for a long time, and um, working in a company like that for that long is a real testament to a whole bunch of things about you. So, uh, grit, intelligence, determination, uh, political savvy, like, yeah, it's very impressive. So, uh, and John Chambers is actually on our board at Sprinkler. And, uh, and so I've gotten to know John, uh, I don't know if you know Carlos Dominguez, um, but Carlos is a good friend of mine and is also on our board and was president of Sprinkler for a long time. Uh, and, um, Diane Adams is our CR, CHRO and, uh, gotten to know her obviously very well. She's a peer of mine. Uh, anyway, so it's, um, there's quite a, quite a Cisco contingent at Sprinkler and, uh, got a, got a fairly good appreciation of how amazing that company is. So, like, that's great. Now, the one challenge, and this is absolutely not in any way, shape, or form a, a, a sort of a slam at Cisco, because this would be true if you worked at Microsoft for 20 years, or IBM for 20 years, or Oracle for 20 years, like any of these great companies, it is sometimes hard to get out, because uh, people tend to go, you know, recruiters will be like, well, you know, you're probably really good at working that system. But, you know, can you live in and work somewhere else? That's kind of the first piece. And then, you know, you're working in a system where there's a lot more levels and a lot more support and all that kind of stuff. And so, you know, would you be able to adjust in new environments? So that's always, I think, a challenge. And then, uh, and then CMO was a new, technically speaking, a new title, although probably not a new set of responsibilities and probably not a new workload, but a new title. And that's also that title thing is a big deal sometimes too. So if you can, like, tell me how did you make that leap? Cause it's a bit unusual to be able to pull that off. how did you make that leap from Cisco to Corel from, you know, what, I don't, what was your last role at Cisco? What was your last title? I was leading uh, America's field marketing segment and in industry marketing. Global. So kind of like VP field marketing or something like that or. Yeah, yeah, check, check, check. Yep. Okay. So, so how do you go from that to CMO? Like, just walk me through kind of how that all played out for you and, and what advice would you have for a lot of people who are thinking about making those kinds of changes themselves right now? It's, it's, a, it's a great question. And, and everything that you just listed was literally 
my interview experience. Um, <laughs> I can't tell you how often I was faced with the question, how are you going to make the transition from this big company that you know has all these right. these things that you have access to to get your job done to going and working in a company that is probably a bit more scrappy? Um, and you know what? The answer that I gave every single time was because this is the time for me to make this transition. I had learned so much from Cisco and I'm so grateful for everything it's taught me as a leader, as, as a marketing professional. Um, I wanted to make a move so I could take all of that and actually see the investments being made result in doing something amazing for a company. And I understood sort of the practical application of, you know, taking as an example, field marketing. We had actually evolved field marketing in Cisco probably two or three times while I was employed at Cisco. And it's kind of like a company within a company. So just being able to practically understand how you transform an organization and applying it to how you're gonna do that in a company and take all your learnings and value that you can bring. So it was definitely about timing for me and also the value that I could add to Corel. Because Corel is actually was standing up a uh, B2B sales and marketing practice. As it relates to the transition itself, I'll tell you, Grant, it was, it was not easy. It was not easy at, at all. Not from the sense that everyone had told me like, oh, you're not gonna have all these resources or this big giant budget or you know all these bells and whistles. The transition was how do you go from a company culture that is so deep mm. and mm. start operating in a net new company. And Cisco, one of the beautiful things about the company is it's definitely about people and relationships. The whole family and ideology really is what John really started yeah. there. So when I think the very first company to really talk about family, which is somewhat controversial. Not everybody agrees with that. Absolutely. And there are pitfalls in that approach. But, but John lived it so deeply and so genuinely. Oh, yeah that you know, he pulled it off and created an entire culture around it. So I can only imagine how challenging it is to try to go somewhere else. And you, and you, you leave a company and you bring all these, all these ways of doing things to your new company. Right. So with the first, the first, now I did some natural things. Like I set up one-on-ones with a bunch of people to get to know them, but it's funny. I'll tell you, I'll tell you a hilarious story. This is not a knock on Cisco. You probably had this experience at Microsoft. So it's the first like month I'm there and I set up a bunch of one-on-ones and I did what I did at Cisco is I came prepared to the meeting because I needed to show up right. with conversation I wanted to have, what I wanted to get out of the, the meeting right. and what are next steps. Like it's just feel this one coming. So I've got, yeah. I see this I like a balloon in the Macy's Thanksgiving day parade, yeah. but keep going. Okay. I gotcha. <laughs> so it says Microsoft on it. So I got my PowerPoint presentation out. Mm -hmm. And literally someone says to me, I won't say their name, why are you presenting to me? We're just having a conversation. And you know, you, you so underappreciate yeah. going from where there, there's just ingrained ways of working to that's just not important. So that, it took me time. It really did. It took me time to make that transition. And, and I had to really recognize and honor that there's things that I'm gonna take from Cisco 
that are going to help me do my job at Corel, but there's things that I just need to just forget, not because they're bad, but because that's just not how it's done at Corel. And it's, it's, I'd say it was a good three months before I actually felt like I, I can now say I work for Corel, right? Versus, mm, wait a minute, hold on, <laughs> who do I work for? Uh, but it's been a massive learning opportunity. I'm completely humbled on a daily basis great. because I don't know everything. That and must be fun, I'm actually. Happy. Like to be on that it's fast fun. learning curve and kind of makes you feel young again. Like, you know, like your brain's kind of like more plastic suddenly, right? Because you're like, you know, kind of pulling new stuff in. It's Absolutely. great. Huh. Absolutely. Well, Google's my dictionary. Sometimes I'm like, what, what, what is that? Oh, that's a, that's a software term. And I'm like, oh, hold on a minute. Like erase my hardware brain. So yeah, I'm learning every day. Well, congratulations. It's a really great story. That is very funny, by the way. Um, okay. So, okay. Now let's, that's kind of this branding issue. You're, you, you kind of teased that at the beginning. And I think it's really, um, really interesting challenge. Now you did sort of say that most of the products have, have knowledge workers in common. Yes, but you are going from when you, you when you said virtualization, you mean like a competitor to Citrix? Is that the? Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yep. So you're going all the way from kind of the almost IT stack end of things, all the way to you know artists using the visual products or lawyers using WordPerfect. So it is that's a pretty it is. It's a pretty wide map. Uh, so. What do you, how are you going to pull that off? Like, what's your, what's your idea on how to make the Corel brand uh, relevant across that many different audiences? So we, we, we are we are dead in the middle of this. Um, so I'll talk a little process. Yeah, that's great. Because okay. I think there's an appreciation for that. You're not um, the only one how? with this problem, by the way. So I mean, a lot of people, our ears are pricking Absolutely. up right now and going, "Okay, what's what's Michelle going to do here?" And they need to send me a message on, on uh, LinkedIn when they have something brilliant to offer <laughs> me. I would appreciate it. Um, so, so number one, we want to anchor our brand in the company strategy, right? I mean, that's that's that is that's what good marketers do. Um, but the company strategy is evolving, right? So, as I said, the company has been built on acquisition. And I don't think we've made our. I know we haven't made our our last acquisition. So, as we continue to start to shape what the future state of our offerings look like, how do we run in parallel mm. and start to build out this, this brand? And when I say brand, I'm, I'm using that very loosely. I'm talking about the company narrative. I'm talking about potentially the company name. I'm talking about values, purpose, going down the list, mm. right? And one of the things that we know that we absolutely want to anchor on and our CEO says this all the time. She says, we sell things that make people's lives better. Now, don't walk away thinking that's a tagline or anything, but we need to anchor on some bigger purpose. So any of these applications that we sell, there is a outcome behind them. I was just talking to a customer on Monday about our mind mapping software, Mind Manager. And this particular customer uh, runs quality assurance at a health healthcare software company. And they use mind mapping to take an incredibly complex process around software testing and they put it into this visual chart. Well, when I asked her, I said, tell me the emotion that, that you're tackling here. And she said, the emotion is that my team is not as frustrated because they're not dealing with 
this cumbersome process, they can visualize it, they're actually having a better experience at work. Hmm. So my manager making it better for that company and then for the lives of the employees. So we're really anchoring on this higher purpose to tell our story. I do believe, Brad, that we'll have, in fact, we've planned this out. We've released our first narrative and we've softly put it into the market. We're gonna be releasing our second narrative let's call it the March time frame, where we're actually gonna to start to shift how Corel visually appears. If you go out and go to Corel.com, you'll see Corel draw. But if you look for parallels, you might see a radio button to click to the parallels website mm. or my manager to click to the mind manager website. But all of our brands are kind of distributed. We are a house of brands, not a branded house. So we wanna start with our online our online experience and our online presence start to change the face of Corel. So be on the lookout in the late March timeframe, you'll see an evolution of our narrative and you will see visually a very, very different Corel. That sounds amazing and really super exciting. So let me, one thing that's become pretty popular, potentially some may argue a little too popular, uh, but there was a book that was written a few years ago called Play Bigger. Are you uh, mm -hmm. familiar with this? I didn't read it, but I'm familiar, familiar with it. it. Okay. It's easy read. They start repeating themselves after page 50. So if you just read the first, I think maybe quarter of the book, you're in pretty good shape. Um, but um, what the basic thesis, uh, just for anyone who hasn't read Play Bigger, is that the um, path to riches, fame, and fortune <laughs> in the software industry is to create a new category. Uh, so... Mm -hmm. You know, virtualization was a new category when VMware created it, and VMware has gone on to sort of dominate that. And you know, the iPhone created a new category of smartphone, and you know, et cetera. There, there's you know, not a m massive number of examples, but some pretty solid examples out there. And the research shows that and I might be wrong on this number by a couple of percentage points, but um, my memory of it is that the research shows that the company that invents a category or dominates a category reaps about 83% of the value of that category. Maybe not the unit sales, but in terms of profit and yeah. value. And so everyone's running around creating categories now. And, uh, and that's where, just like everything, you know, the mimicry is often you know, a pale imitation of the real thing. And so a lot of these categories aren't real categories, and some are, and just like kind of an interesting, it's interesting watching everyone trying to create categories. Um, but there is an actual category called Employee Experience Management, or EXM. And it's, it's sort of the um, flip side of the coin to CXM, which is category that Sprinkler lives inside. And our version of it is Unified CXM. So we are CXM, but our, our twist on it is that we are a unified platform. So we can you can get a more cohesive view of the customer. It's sort of similar to how Salesforce went into the CRM category, yeah. but they were cloud CRM, so they modified it and created their own category. So as you talk about what you do, and as I look at sort of your portfolio, it does feel like at the end of the day, Krell's very focused on employee experience. Um, are you thinking about attaching yourself to EXM, or are you thinking about a I'll just I'll just say unified because that's what we did. So I'm not suggesting this would be the right thing for you necessarily. Uh, are you thinking of a unified EXM or a um, you know I don't know graphite powered or like <laughs> whatever sort of set of words sort of yeah, modifier yeah, yeah. of EXM? 
or are you not worrying about the category so much and just focused on just the Corel brand or whatever that brand should be long term? It's, it's a it's a great question. Um, I, I think that I'm going to answer you somewhere. In, I think we're doing something in the middle. Okay. Okay. I don't know that we we've, we've quite thought out this notion of of the employee experience, but what what I do know we are thinking about is how do we create applications software, as I said, that make people's lives better. Right. Um, how that comes to fruition in how we tell our story um, is soon to be told. I think that when you, um, I can tell you when we look at the actual user, right? That is the employee. The buyer might be someone that sits in the IT department. Now we can create a great experience all day long for that IT buyer. As an example, it's going to be the experience they have buying from Corel. But if we're not thinking about that user that has actually got their hands on the keyboard using Mind Manager, Corel Draw, we've 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 failed. So when we start to think about oh. our laying out our audiences around our brand work, we have to think about the markets that we're in, the buyers, and then the users. And that user experience is ultimately, which is an employee. Now there are some hobbyists to your point earlier. If their experience is not not positive, I mean, just just any software yeah, company point, dies. Yeah. So we we are indirectly thinking like that. I don't know that we've connected to that category per se, but I think it's absolutely. I think it's something to think about, and you're giving me something to take away. Well, so let's kind of keep going on that path, but where I'm going to sort of tease into this other challenge you have. What maybe not be may not be that big a challenge because you you know it so well, but you know setting up a B two B selling motion we kind of where I want to head. But I want to try to join these two threads because you know, what is interesting. I had a fascinating conversation with someone um, two or three weeks ago who was running a packaged goods type of business, old friend of mine, and uh, and I I started in packaged goods. I've been sort of on both sides. I've been kind of B two B and B two C, kind of almost fifty fifty in my career. Uh, currently, I'm in a B2B environment at Sprinkler. And, uh, and this, this friend of mine is like, he goes, yeah, do you feel like you're kind of losing your B2C chops because you're in B2B? And I was like, oh, blah, 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 people, and it's this kind of thing, human to human, like all that kind of sort of stuff we tend to say. But there are obviously you know, fairly significantly nuanced differences between the two. And then um, and I, said, well, I said, well, what about you? How are you thinking about your B2B side of the business? And he goes, what B2B side of the business? And I said, well, he says, we're a B2C business. I said, where are you? I said, you know, like, yeah, you're end consumer. This is your point a second ago. You're end consumer. Check. That's B2C. Uh, so that's your pull. Yeah. But if Walmart doesn't put you on the shelf, you could be selling anything. So isn't Walmart, Target, you know, the list goes on. We are familiar with them all. Aren't they really your real customer? And isn't that a massive B2B selling motion? And how, how heavily tooled are you for that? And it was a really interesting watching this epiphany roll over his face. And, and, it, and that, that was, I think, something P&G did really well, where we actually called our, our customers were the retailers. 
and then the end user was the consumer. And that differentiation was very powerful uh, because we ran separate motions against them. So as you think about your branding challenge and you maybe, maybe a business challenge as well, I think you kind of sort of talked about this a minute ago, you've got your end users who have to love the using experience and you've got the, say, IT manager or the CIO or whomever who has to be yeah. sold to in a B2B motion. So you kind of have kind of a B2C to end users and a B2B to the providers because if, you know, the CIO doesn't set up WordPerfect, no one's using it, right? That's right. Uh, and uh, that's a pretty interesting challenge. You're more like, you look more like a packaged goods company in that context than most traditional software companies where they're more monotheistic against a single user profile. So, so I'd love to talk about that a little bit. Then in the context of that, how are you thinking about setting up a B2B selling motion? Because it doesn't sound like Corel had heavily invested in thinking about the IT team and the CIO. Yeah, that, uh, this is this is probably a two-hour podcast. So, so <laughs> Corel is is a fascinating company uh, in the sense that uh, I'm going to give you round numbers. Yeah, forty percent of the business runs through an indirect selling model. Our salespeople work with a partner. Yeah, sixty percent of the business is transacted online. Okay. Now, if you if you were to operate in the old world when to buy technology, even if it's it's software, right? You're going, you're buying software from uh, Best Buy, could be a channel. You're buying software from a, a reseller. You're going and downloading it from a website. Like these motions, you could pinpoint between all right, this is a business-to-business customer that's buying it to deploy these applications across their company to, oh, this is a hobbyist that does photography work and just wants Corel Draw to do some fun things. In today's world, that doesn't fly. In fact, when you look at our how our e-commerce business is transacted, we might be selling to five, six, seven, eight individuals but the reality is those five, six, seven, eight individuals are part of a small business that wants to be treated like a business to business customer. Right. So, so if, if, if we make the mistake of, I'll give you a great example, a friend of mine, he's, he is a diehard Corel draw guy. And he's like, Michelle, I wait every single quarter. You guys want a promotion every year. You want a promotion. And I wait for it to come and I click buy. Hmm. We don't connect those dots across the board. We're creating conflict across our entire go-to-market. So we have to, I love how you said it. It's the, it's the buyer and the user. And yes, I agree. It's end user. It's like packaged goods. But the opportunity is to neutralize that because Greg, you, you know this selling software. If a customer wants to transact online, why would we stop them? If a customer says, I don't want to transact online, I'm going to go to my local reseller who manages my IT top to bottom. So, so I think our opportunity is to get smart across all the different buying touch points to understand their behavior and how they want to transact. I think very often, and Corel has, has definitely made this mistake, we think, how do we want to sell? Right. And once we figure that out, I think to your kind of undertone, B2B, B2C, it's kind of like it's, it's buying. 
and we honor it based on what the customer actually wants to do. And, and this is the kind of thinking we're starting to bring to the forefront. Um, and it's, un, it's unnatural because you know, your, your buying motions historically have been very linear. Yeah, that's great. Well, that's, that's the, the new rallying cry. I, I think I hear it from everyone I talk to is we're going to become a customer-centric company or more customer-centric or the customer is the most important thing. Like, and I, I struggle to imagine a time in my career when I didn't hear that. Like I can, you know, recall meetings at Procter and Gamble in the 1980s where, you know, the customer was at the center of everything we do. Like, uh, you know, Ford customers number one. Like it's that that was that's a campaign from I think the 70s. Like, you know, it's not. It's very rare that a company would say we don't really care about our customers. Like, like I really don't think I've ever heard anyone say that, right? But this it's like there's a it's just kind of the fatty thing right now is to say that, and I I'm all, I'm a little. Uh, my, my curiosity is piqued by it a little bit, which is, what is that? Why are people saying that right now? Like, what are they, what are they feeling that they're not doing, and and how do they think they're going to behave differently? And I, I think you may have touched on hit the nail on the head there, where you're, you talk about this linearity of channels, starting to create um, sort of this sense of this is the way we do things here, and your comment is. Why? Like, if the customer wants to do exactly. it a different way, like, why wouldn't you do that? So, why yeah. Not? So, so is that a, is that a, do you see that as a cultural challenge or do you see it as a business challenge or how do you, is it, is it a silo department challenge? Like, how do you see the, how, what kind of dragon are you trying to slay here? So I, I think it's all the above, but I, I will tell you this is, so I believe when somebody says customer first, I, I, I literally asked the next question, which is, how do you do that? What actions do you take? Great question. Like, give me examples of actions that you yeah, take. Yeah, great. I love that. And I'll tell you, the action, and this is one piece of it, but I fundamentally believe in, in B2B, this is, well, in companies that have B2B and B2C, yeah. this is the rub. The rub is who's going to get paid. Now, I don't, I'm not even going to suggest compensation models because that's not my business. But if you do truly do what I said and neutralize the buying process, you have to compensate people differently. So, I mean, that's when you've got a sales-driven motion, it's what money goes in their pocket. So that would be an action. If somebody said to me, you know what, I'm, gonna, I'm no longer going to pay my salespeople on commission. I'm going to pay them on hitting certain uh, business metrics quarterly, yeah. making that up. Then I'd be like, they're actually serious because they want to take the competition out. Have you read the new Frank Slootman book, Amp It Up? No, should I? Yeah, I mean, in the first quarter of the book, there's a story uh, about when Frank arrived at Snowflake. He's the CEO at Snowflake right now. Yeah. Uh, so when he arrived at Snowflake, he talks about how the, exactly what you were just saying, he talks about how the pay and commission structure for the sales team was misaligned with the goals of the company. And, uh, and they, I don't remember, this, uh, I remember a little bit, but they were basically on bookings and, uh, not consumption. And so they would sort of like book it, uh, maybe oversell it. Uh, so there'd be a down round on the next renewal and, but they kind of like say, or sayonara and then move on to the next thing. 
Uh, whereas then, so he changed it to consumption based. So the sellers are really highly incented to keep that customer going, keep them consuming. And that's obviously been a great accelerant to their growth. So I think you're on the exact right issue. And he talks about this quite a bit in terms of alignment between the different groups in the company. He's also super duper negative on management by objectives, MBO. Uh, he actually says as soon as he arrives in a company and sees MBO, he dismantles it immediately because he sees it as a way of misaligning teams by giving them like their own thing to run as opposed to having everyone aligned around the same thing to run. It's, just, it's actually quite an interesting book. I mean, the my understanding is that part of the reason he wrote it is that people take bits of Frank Slootman sort of advice and they implement yeah. that, but often it's maybe the dysfunctional part about make your employees work harder and faster, and they don't do like any of the other stuff he does that makes people want to work harder and faster, right? And so you just and so that he said this is like the five things I do in total, and let me describe them in more detail. Um, it's yeah. only I think the paper, I think the Dead Tree version is like not out yet, but I got mine on Kindle. I'm a quarter way through it, it and I'm whipping through it pretty fast. It's a, it's a really breezy read. It's really fun to read. And it, you might find there might be something interesting or, or helpful in there for you. Um, so um, let's, can, we, can we have some fun for a second with Corel? Do you mind if we sort of switch gears a bit on the brand? So, so as you think about the brand, you know, this branding challenge is an interesting one. And the last brand that I saw try to try to say – you think of us this way, but we're actually this way was Radio Shack. And it didn't, it didn't work out for them because there's a good example too, by the way. So I've got two examples, Radio Shack and Rolling Stone, but I'm going to do Radio Shack first. So Radio Shack ran a Super Bowl ad, and I don't know how many years ago this was, because it wasn't a million years ago. It was maybe 2014 or something. And um, the problem was Radio Shack was d- deeply undercapitalized, and, and it, was, it was almost a little too late for them to kind of get to the point of fixing this. But they, they ran this amazing ad where they had all these icons of the 1980s, including a DeLorean, which actually I own a DeLorean, so that's why I was like pretty plugged into this ad. And they have all this stuff gets loaded onto the top of the DeLorean, which uh, if you know anything about DeLoreans, they're gull wings, so you don't really put stuff on the top of a yeah, DeLorean. Yeah. But anyway, so they put all the stuff on the top of the DeLorean, and then they drove it away. And, um, and it, the way they did it, though, is they just showed the stuff from the past, and so they, what it did is they, and they, there was some kind of tagline at the end, which is, you know, Radio Shack's new and different, or it's not the way you remember it, or whatever. But it was like 99% of the drama and all of the visual interest was around all this cool stuff from the 1980s. And then, and then all you were left with is like, yeah, Radio Shack, they're so 80s. Yeah. <laughs> that was kind of, that was really where they left you, right? <laughs> okay. And so, so that was like, that's probably a, a good sort of like cautionary tale. Then the, the one that worked, extraordinarily well was one that Rolling Stone magazine did in the early 1980s uh, where Rolling Stone magazine which was originally started as kind of like rock and roll and you know kids getting high and Woodstock and that was sort of their their origins um, had all those people had you know woken up one day realized they needed to start you know doing stuff and making money and they got married that was kind of what the 70s were about and then everyone started having families and then you know next thing you know it's 1980s and people have established careers and they're wearing suits and taking but they still went to woodstock or they still wish they'd gone to woodstock or whatever right there's a great stat out there of how many people say they've gone to woodstock versus how many people were at woodstock so i think i think there were like 400,000 people yeah i think there were 400,000 people at woodstock still a big number i mean i'm not i'm not like trying to slam it, it 
pretty impressive, right? And that was like really just up the road from where we were where, when I was a kid. But I did not go. Um, but I think when you do a random survey and then extend it across the population, something like 15 to 20 million people say they're at Woodstock. <laughs> anyway, so that's, that's, a, that's an aside. So Rolling Stone had this reputation as being this like kids in rock and roll magazine. But their actual audience were pretty wealthy, successful people who had kind of grown up. And they did this great campaign where they said, you know, this is kind of like, this is how you think of us. This is how we really are. I don't know if you've ever seen this campaign, but it was like mostly in magazines. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was extraordinarily successful in rapidly changing the image of Rolling Stone because it was like new information. And they did it with data. So they did it with facts. And the, the drama was actually not about, remember the how cool we were in the 60s? The drama was you didn't know that most of our buyers drive Mercedes or something like that, right? And and then this because it was surprising, the data stuck really well because I feel like I learned something I didn't know that was surprising to me and very intriguing. Um, and but there haven't been like I couldn't go on for hours and all the different people who tried this. It's actually it's actually a fairly limited list. So as you're thinking executionally on this, do you feel like you need to challenge people on their conception of Corel? Or do you feel it's more just like moving forward and you kind of not, not sort of, you know, kind of the what's behind me doesn't matter kind of, kind of quote. Um, how do you, how are you like, how are you thinking about this in a, in a branding and execution and advertising way? So one more you should look at is Polaroid. That's another, that's another good oh, yeah. where they made, yeah. they made something 80s cool again yeah that's a great um, example yeah. they did not they didn't take the um radio shack uh page out of the book but anyways so so i i think that it's um so, so it depends on the product honestly um if you take the product that everyone knows corel draw um frankly we've got a massive challenge ahead of us because if you look at take the rolling stones thing the rolling stone thing you look at school age kids, um, college students, they're not using Corel Draw right. for their graphics needs, right? If you go up the stack, our demographic is, is much older, right? So if we don't do something forward thinking and different to show why, and I'm, I'm going by brand here to, to to say why? Why would you make? Why would you not use, you know, Canva, which is this up and coming thing, and, or yeah. Adobe, which these aren't I mean, a whole other conversation. If you know, there's not these are not apples to apples. They're apples, oranges, and bananas. But for the user, no one's thinking that. So we're probably going to have to make a pretty drastic shift. You take a brand like Parallels. In the VDI space, Parallels is very well is very well known. It's known for its ease of use. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's, it's known brand. for its the ability to scale. Um, you know, we just might get lucky here with this thing around Citrix that was announced last week with them going private. And so, I think we're going to have to go brand by brand and then anchor the Uber brand, right? The I don't like this term, by the way, but you know, the holding company brand. We don't want to be a holding company. But when you're going to look across multiple brands, what's that bigger story? Master, what's that the master brand? What's the Nabisco, right? 
Yes. Yeah. Yes. Very interesting. So we've got a work cut out for us. So we interesting. We, 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 I, I, can we yeah. can we check in like in the fall? Would you yes. be okay with that? Okay. I I, I cannot it. wait to see where you play this out because it's going to be. This is one of the most interesting branding challenges I've seen in a while. So I'm I'm excited for you. Um, Awesome. Hopefully you're excited for you too, but I think it's really, I think it was, I'm sure there will be days where you're not that excited for you, but uh, it is really, really cool challenge. It is a really cool challenge. Well, Michelle, we've gone a little over and I really appreciate your indulgence because, uh, but just such an interesting, um, it's such an interesting job you have right now. And I really, I really love how thoughtful you are about this. So, uh, it's, it's just uh, really inspiring to, to hear from you and I'm sure, uh, you'll get a bunch of people asking you to connect with them on LinkedIn and stuff like that. And maybe they'll give you, maybe they'll give you suggestions. And by the way, on the Polaroid story, I totally get that. I was actually, uh, I've, been, I've kept buying Polaroids. I have a massive collection of Polaroids. Um, because there was, when they went under, there was a group of people that bought the last factory and created something called the Impossible Project and kept producing the film. And then the new Polaroid company hatched from that. And now they've got, you know, little mini cameras and all sorts of cool stuff going on. And there's like a completely new thing. Um, but it's like a really interesting story of a, a group of fanatics essentially keeping it alive long enough for it to revive itself, which is not quite the situation you're in for sure. But the it's another interesting story about brands, right? We could recruit some Corel fanatics. You know, yeah, I'm up for no, that. We're not fanatics. <laughs> they're, they're, we love our fanatics. All right, so I'm going to wrap. And so, Michelle, um, anything else that you want to add? Um, what I'll do is if you've got any last thoughts, I'll let you throw it in now. I'll do a quick close on it. And then just stay on for a minute or two uh, after we finish the show and we'll, we'll complete the upload. But just, uh, just anything, any last thoughts or bits of advice or pithy statements from the audience? Yeah. My, my, my only closing thoughts would be, you know, there's, there's many challenges that, that I've teed up here and uh, certainly none of us have it all figured out. But as a, as a marketing community, the, the way that we can help and solve for each other uh, is the community that we need to be tapping into. So um, I do hope that many of you connect with me on LinkedIn. Uh, I always respond. Um, I might not do it the day you do it. But um, would love to hear your thoughts and comments. Even if you hated what I said, uh, let's just keep a marketing community going. So, so Brad, I appreciate you doing this. Fantastic. Exactly that. Okay. Thanks for having me. Well, today we've been talking to Michelle Shantera. She's the CMO at Corel and uh, had a storied career at Cisco. It's fantastic to have you on the show today. Uh, and for the Unified CXM Experience, I'm Brad Kahn, CXO at Sprinkler. And I'll talk to you next time.